Well, thank you, worship team. Well, good morning. Who knew we'd be in the middle of winter in uh, early October, or late October now? Uh, I woke up this morning and saw that the temperature was 27. And uh, I just was saying, thank you, Lord, that we were able to get paint on our building before it got too cold. And uh, so uh, very grateful for that. But there's also a rumor, because there are a few spots that we haven't quite gotten taken care of. There's a rumor that next Saturday there might be another painting party. So be watching Bob for that and, uh, and checking that out. Also, uh, it is the fall. Next week will be the first Sunday in November, and it will be Daylight Savings. It'll be the first day of Daylight Savings. So that's always one of my favorite days because you can fall back and sleep in another hour. So if you're here next week a little an hour early, well, you'll get to listen to the worship team, and uh, that'll be a good thing. But uh, next week will be uh, Daylight Savings, so remember that. Last thing I want to address before I get into today's message is um, if you want to contribute to Channel One, you have cash, uh, there will be a bucket out here in the foyer and you can put the money in there or you can make the check out to uh, Channel One or you can make it out to Berean and just put Channel One on the, on the memo. But uh, that can be, if you want to contribute to that on your way out, there's an opportunity out in the foyer. So that's enough of the uh, secondary announcements. And let's get into uh, the message today. So let's pretend for a moment that you have a coworker. And your coworker's name is Gertrude. Now that's not a common name, and I chose it because I know there's no Gertrudes at Berean. And Gertrude is a woman, and she's a young lady. And she's looking for love in all the wrong places. She's going out to the bar and having one night stands. She's allowed men in her life who have abused her physically, emotionally, verbally. She's allowed men to move in with her. And they've stolen from her. And you're just shaking your head like, girl... You are looking for love, again, in all the wrong places. But then, Gertrude meets a man named Frank. And Frank is a good man. And he, he really has a heart for Gertrude. He loves her. He's considerate. He oftentimes sends her flowers at work just because. Uh, and, you know, he is kind to her. He builds her up. Esteems are you're thinking, honey, you are you you better get on this because you know this is a good man. And eventually they marry. They marry, and uh you think, man, this is so good for Gertrude. So good for her. You're at the wedding and uh you're excited. In fact, you know, Frank is such a good man that you know he's made it possible for for Gertrude not to work. I mean, she could stay at home if she wanted to, but she wants to continue work, so, so she does. But after about a year and a half of, of their marriage, you, you notice Gertrude's getting a little bored. And she starts flirting with the, the male staff at work. And you kind of go, come on, Gertrude, you got Frank, what's wrong? But it, it manifests itself in, you know, she starts wearing provocative clothing, starts going to happy hour with some of the male co-workers, and suddenly she's involved with this guy named Vic at work. And you know he's a womanizer, you know he's a user, and she, Gertrude tells Frank that she has to go away for a, a work conference for the weekend, when in truth she's getting away with Vic to Las Vegas. And you're looking at this, and you're friends with her, and what do you say to her? What would you say to her? Go ahead, give me something. Don't go, Don't go all right. What else? Have fun. What are you going to tell her? You're heading 
back towards destruction. You're heading back towards foolishness. You're heading back towards relational bankruptcy. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And this is what happens to the people of God in relationship to the living God. They start turning back and start commit, having an affair with other gods. And you'll see how that manifests itself today. So, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 9 and 10. And I have to tell you, this is one of the hardest passages to preach because there's pain and there's hurt and it goes all around. But some hard choices have to be made and part of that is to save the heart and a relationship with the living God. So let me pray for us and then we'll get into the Word of God. So Lord, you know... Um, you know what this message is, and you know uh, it's your word, and we need to hear it. And we want to be a faithful people to you, Lord Jesus, our Savior, our Christ, the one who's came and given us life. And you are our, <laughs> our husband who will take us to yourself for eternity. And uh, we are your glorious bride as the church. So we pray that you will make us a faithful people. But open the eyes of our hearts today, Lord. Help us to see what you have for us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. So last week, we saw God's gracious hand bring a second generation of exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem to be a holy people unto the living God. They were led by the priest and teacher Ezra. So this is actually the first time we, we meet him last week, even though the whole book is named after him. And this is 58 years after the temple has been built, 78 years since the first exiles returned. This is two generations of exiles of people who were called to be holy to the Lord. They had been in exile because they had been unfaithful to God. But Ezra's main mission, as he saw it, was to come back and teach the law, to set up magistrates and judges to teach the law and enforce it again so that they would be a holy people, living exclusively unto the Lord, the living God. But soon things head in a wrong direction. And what we discover is the infidelity of the people and the leaders of God. Now I'm going to tell you right now, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to let the text do a lot of the talking, but I'm going to interject some, some points along the way. So, Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Remember, Ezra had just come to, to uh, Jerusalem with, with this group of people. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Again, this is not an issue of um, mixed race more than it is an issue of mixed faith in their marriage. They were marrying women who followed other gods and participated in detestable practices like that of the Canaanites which is meaning sexual deviation in worship, child sacrifice, occultic practices, and they attribute to these false gods creation and the providence of God. And they're foregoing the revelation of, of what God has given them 
in his word. There was a reason, by the way, that God brought punishment on the Canaanites through the Israelites. But here's also what I want to point out. There is no other relationship in life that affects you emotionally and spiritually and profoundly like that of marriage. It affects everything. As you partner your lives together, how are we going to move together as a couple? And this people, the people of God, were called to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their strength, even in marriage, every aspect. But this was really a case of spiritual infidelity as these foreign women urge their husbands to worship the foreign gods that they worship. And even if they weren't actively participating in this, they were still in a place where they were distracted and there was a house divided. Now, in today's world, where we you know, value pluralism, we'd call this, well, this is diversity. This is great. And God is saying, no, it's not. Because diversity means we're divided. We're not unified. This, again, is a case of spiritual adultery. And Ezra realizes this. And look at the dramatic, and I mean dramatic, response of Ezra. Verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic. So here's Pastor Nathan ripping open his sweater, right? And I tore my cloak, so I'm ripping open my shirt and pulled hair from my head and from my beard. I don't have a beard, okay? But I sat down and was appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. This is saying, I'm not happy. We are heading in a wrong direction. I am wretched. We are wretched. He's so distraught with the people's unfaithfulness that he can't help but show it in front of everybody else. And it's external. And I know we don't do this here up in the great north of the frozen chosen. But this is what he wants to express. We are in a bad place. And I'm going to show that. And in verse 4 it says, some were impacted. Those who trembled at the words of God. When we get a glimpse into who God is as a holy God, and how far short we have come of His holiness, folks, do we, when we are looking in the Scriptures, tremble at the Word of God, of who He is, and how far short we have come. When's the last time, follower of Jesus Christ, you wept for your sin? Sin that's taking you away from following your Lord. Taking you away from your affection and your loyalty to Him. When's the last time you wept for the sin of others? Or maybe your own sin that's, that's hardening and deceiving and destroying. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Or do we just say, ah, it's no big deal. It was a big enough deal that Jesus goes to the cross for it, folks. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel badly. I'm just telling you, sin is a serious issue. And Ezra is so overwhelmed by this devastating revelation of what the people have done in their unfaithfulness. He has nowhere to go but to God. And so he brings a public prayer or a public confession. Look at verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and my cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands out, my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you. Because our sins are higher than, the he than our heads, and our guilt has reached the heavens. 
from the days our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because our, of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjugated to the sword and to captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. So Ezra is confessing He's not confessing just what the, you know, what the people were doing now, but what the people have done in the past and what he, as part of the people of God, has done. He's not looking down at the other people. He's including himself. But then he also, notice this, verse 8, he turns to the faithfulness of God. But now, for a brief moment, The Lord our God has been gracious, leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and little relief from our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. And he has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. And he has granted us new life to rebuild the house of God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah. You know, when you are struck by your sin and your shortcomings or those around you, if you focus exclusively on that, it just leaves you nowhere but despair and discouragement. But when we turn to our gracious God, whose power and mercy is greater than our sin, it gives us hope. Psalm 103, verse 10 says, He does not treat us as our sin deserves. And that's something we need to lean into. On the other hand, though, when we know what God has required of us, and we blatantly disobey His word, and we know it, it puts us in a place, a precarious position, and really we're just returning to our old foolishness. Verse 10, but now our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands that you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, they do not... Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your son, for your sons. And do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it, uh, leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. Don't intermarry with these folks. They live a life of spiritual pollution. It's polluted the land. Be separate from them. Don't do this. And by the way, this is really a, an encapsulation of what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, if you just want to know where this, this verse comes from. But it's what led Solomon astray. First of all, Solomon married too many women to begin with. That, that was the first problem. It was, he had a house divided. But worst of all, it says in 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 4, that he married many foreign wives who led him astray. This is supposed to be the wisest man that ever lived, at least from an earthly standpoint. And he is led astray from the living God. All these foreign wives. I have one foreign wife. That's hard enough, right? (laughs) Sorry, honey. It's going to be a long winter, I know. <laughs> but this is the king doing this, right? Leading, he was led astray. He set up foreign shrines to worship foreign gods. When God gave him the privilege of setting up the temple, that is sheer foolishness. And these people... <laughs> Over the period of hundreds of years, they were caused to go astray, so much to the point eventually that they were in exile for 70 years. 
And he continues on in verse 13. And what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have, our God have punished us less than our sins deserve and have given us a remnant like this. So shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous, and we are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it none of us can stand in your presence. See, here's Ezra's fear. That the Lord will even wipe out the remnant that's left because of their unfaithfulness to God. And, you know, he would be justified. He says in verse 15, Lord, you are righteous. For you to do this would, would, be, would be justified. But Ezra feels like he has no place to go. He has no place to go except to confess and call out on the living God. Even knowing they have no, they have no standing before a holy God. It's a pretty scary place. On the other hand, is that not the message of the gospel? Is that not the message of the gospel? You and I have no right standing before a holy God. We may try and keep his word. We may try and do what's right. But ultimately, we fail. Our hearts go astray. We are wretched. We are broken. We have been unfaithful. Again, Ezra's coming to teach the law, right? That we can be a holy people. We're going to do all the right things. And yet, right here we discover that, and these people know the law. I mean, it's not as though this is a foreign concept to them. They, they rebel. They go astray. And it shows us that the law cannot save us. All it can do is show us our sin. And there's no way for us to make it right. There are not enough sacrifices to do it because it can't change the heart. We can only look to God to make it right. To bridge the gap. And he does so in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, while we're in rebellion, while we're doing our own thing, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Two things happen in that moment. God's justice is satisfied. And it opens up a way for us to be reconciled to the living God. And the change agent is not us tight-fisting it. It is allowing the Holy Spirit to come and change us in Christ He's the change agent, not ourselves. They're saying, Jesus, come in and do in me what I cannot do myself. As the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take it, seal it. Seal it for your, your thrones above. If you're working to be good enough, it'll never happen. It will never happen because God's standard is perfection. And the only one who was perfect was Jesus. But guess what? He stands in your place. If you're here when we celebrate communion once a month, a verse I quite often quote is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says that God made him who knew no sin, talking about Jesus Christ, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange in Christ that takes place. So even in this, this desperate place, there is still hope for God to do something. 
But within this, there is a call to repentance. Not to keep doing what you're doing, but to turn back to Him. To make choices to cling to Him. And, and as we get into the next chapter, we're going to find out that those choices are hard choices. Are hard choices. So, as we get into chapter 3, this is what I call the people's repentant response. And this is the whole chapter 10. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. So there's a sense of corporate grief, like, you're right. We are heading the wrong direction. Then Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elon, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But, in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord, of, of those who fear the commands of God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Shechaniah recognizes that God is using Ezra to call attention to this seriousness of the people's sin and their unfaithfulness and their current spiritual trajectory is heading in the wrong direction. And he urges Ezra to take courage and leadership to help God's people repent and return to the Lord. And even make the hard choice to put away their foreign wives. And when I mean put away, I mean divorce. Let them go back to their house from when they came. So verse 5, so Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under, under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took an oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went into the room of Yohanan with the son of Elishab and was there and he ate no food and drank no water because they continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. So again, even though Ezra hadn't partaken in marrying foreign wives and this unfaithfulness, he felt the weight of sin, the weight uh, and the grief of that. But again, remember back in chapter 8, he was given authority by the king, by Artaxerxes, to enforce and make uh, spiritual changes in Israel. So verse 7, it says this, A proclamation then was issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and the elders, and would himself be expelled from the assembly of exile. So the threat of loss of property, the, the threat of being kicked out of the spiritual community, which meant you could not attend uh, worship in the temple anymore. Within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Can you imagine the scene? Just think of our parking lot filled with people and it is pouring rain. And they are distressed because they know, they know what's coming. They know that Ezra is going to call them to put away their foreign wives. And it's raining. This is a sad occasion. And it seems like creation itself is mourning. It is a stressful situation. Then the Ezra the priest, verse 10, stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and you have married foreign, foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make confession uh, to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do this. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly is, is responded in a loud voice, You are right. We must do as you say. 
But there are many people here. And it is the rainy season. So we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two. Because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our then let everyone in our towns who has married foreign women come at a set time along with the elders and the judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Abishael, and Jehaziah, son of Tikvah, supported Meshulam, and Sebatai, the, the uh, Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. As were the priests selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases, and by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. So as we read that, I don't know what you feel. But this is a messy situation. And even as I've been reading this and preparing this all week, it's heavy. It is heavy. You just feel the weight of this. Putting away these unbelieving wives is going to be difficult. It's going to be emotionally difficult. And there are children involved. What's going to happen to them? And let's not pretend that these men didn't love these women or these children if there were kids here. So it's heavy in that regard. It was also a, a cumbersome pro- process. When in verse 13 says we have great, greatly sinned, yes, there's a sense of degree, but there's also a sense of numerically prevalent. There, there are a lot of people who did this. And so there has to be an investigation into each person who married a foreign wife. And it was a two-month process. And again, it's really not about foreign wives because there are plenty of foreigners, foreign women who come into the house of the living God. You can go back to Moses, the lawgiver, who said don't marry foreign wives. And he married, he married uh, a Cushite woman named Zipporah. But she followed the Lord. And so he could marry her. We get to Joshua. We meet a woman named Rahab, who's a prostitute, who becomes a part of the people of God because she puts her hope and trust in Yahweh, the living God. And then you get to the book of Ruth, and we meet a Moabitess named Ruth, who marries into, who marries into the, the tribe of Judah. And by the way, both Ruth and Rahab are in the genealogy of Jesus. So this is not about your, your foreign lineage. It's about your faith. And I'm certain those wives who actually said, yeah, I am going to follow Yahweh, were allowed to stay. But those who are going to carry on their pagan identity, their pagan practices and connections with their pagan relatives, they were sent back. And that's the solution. And it's tough because the pain is real. The pain is real. The relational pain is real. It's also tough because this should have never happened to begin with. This should have never taken place in the first place. They have gotten involved with a relationship that's going to lead them astray and threaten the whole uh, nation as far as putting them in peril of God's judgment. It's painful. And here, here's what I want to say, and I want to say it both compassionately but also truthfully. When we decide to do our own thing and go against the Word of God, He does not always shield us from the pain of the consequences that that follow. When David has an, an affair with Bathsheba, there are consequences that follow.
That's what takes place oftentimes when we decide to do our own thing. And there's no wagging my finger because there are three to four fingers pointing back at me. Okay? But that's the truth of doing our own thing and deciding that we know better than the living God. It was painful. It's like cutting off a gangrene, gangrene limb, but it was necessary. And again, it was prevalent. And here's a portion I'm not going to read to you. Verses 18 through 44. It's a list of all the men who married foreign wives. And you'll be shocked because it starts in the house of the high priest. Then to the priests. Then to the Levites. So these are all the people who are involved in worship and should know better. Then the gatekeepers and the singers. And then it goes to the people. And all of them, all the people are connected with prominent heads of houses of Israel. If you want an interesting exercise, take this list and then compare it to the list in chapter 2. And you see that these great men of God had grandsons that were unfaithful to God. And it's sad. It's painful. But it's, it's what needs to happen. Proverbs 26.11 says, As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. And all of us can be fools when we return back to those broken cisterns that we're looking to life in and they don't give us life. That's what God is trying to show us here. So, here we are today. What's our application? Deuteronomy 5.6. This is true for the Jewish people and I think it's true for us today. It's a command, the greatest command, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. That is everything you've got. He has to take priority of allegiance over everything and everyone. And if we love our spouse or our children more than we love God, then that is idolatry. And that's how Satan tries to pervert things, is to make good things that God gives us a God in place of him. And that, can, that happens quite often in Christian circles. We can make our kids an idol. In one way of, of trying to shape them and, and guide them the way we want them to go. We're certain that they're going to be the next Clayton Kershaw and be a pitcher for the Dodgers. But when they don't turn out that and then they're angry at you, it's like, it's like, okay, Dad, Mom, you've been living through your kids rather than letting God shape them into who they ought to be. Or we hold on to them so tightly because we're afraid that they're, you know, they may be harmed in this world we put a helmet on them everywhere they go to the place where we don't allow them to grow. We don't let them to be in a place where they have to depend upon the Lord and something might actually go south somewhere along the way. We keep them near in fear and they never grow up. And they never grow up in their faith because of this because we can't trust God with our kids. Again, they've become an idol. They've become an idol. What do you think God was doing when he asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah? What was he trying to do in Abraham's heart? The scripture says he sought out to test Abraham. Am I God or is Isaac God? In your heart, Abraham. But back to our current situation. Would we do something like this in the New Testament era? If we've got 
a believer, married to a non-believer. Well, I think the Apostle Paul has something to say about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, and I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it right now. If an unbelieving spouse is living with you as a, as a Christian and they allow you to live your Christian life, well, then don't divorce them. Don't leave them. But if they want to leave because you're living a Christian life and they don't want to go that direction, then, then don't force them to stay. You're not bound. You're called to live in peace. And if you're afraid that somehow, well, they'll never be saved, well, he's, Paul says, how do you know that you're going to save them? You have to trust that to God, not to yourself. Again, that's releasing and trusting God that he can work in that situation. So if, if you're married to a, a non-believer and they allow you to live your Christian life, well, then stay in that covenant. Stay in that because that, that honors God as far as keeping a covenant and being faithful. And the church wouldn't be calling on you to divorce that unbeliever, nor would they condemn you if that unbeliever left you. On the other hand, this is, this is especially to my young people, my single friends here. And I want you to be listening to me right now. The Scripture commands you not to get into a partnership with someone who is an unbeliever. Because there is no greater partnership, folks, than marriage. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what else does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. If you're going to marry someone who is not a follower of Christ, you're heading towards a world of hurt because you're going to be in a place where there's going to be distraction, disagreement, division about what the priorities are in this house, how are we going to raise our children, what are we going to do with our finances, you know, what are we living for. And there's the possibility that that person may lead you astray from Christ, who has to be our first priority. And here's what I want to say to my single friends, and this is not me wagging my finger at you all. But I would rather see you single following Jesus than married to somebody who does not follow him because it will save you from a world of pain. And also, when you do that, you're making marriage an idol. You're saying, I need this in order to be fulfilled. It seems like Jesus and the Apostle Paul, who were both single men, did okay as far as being fulfilled, as far as finding fulfillment in life. I'd encourage you, make Christ the priority. And if he brings you a godly spouse, praise God. And if he keeps you single, praise God because he has something different for you. And again, this narrative is about the people of God who are allowing themselves to be led astray through marriage. But there are other things, other things that can lead us astray, that can be a bar barrier between us and our relationship with Christ as the priority. It might be our entertainment, what we choose as entertainment. Hey, when you binge Netflix of that show, where does that take your heart as far as your relationship with Christ? Does that make you more like Him and value Him and, and the things of Him, or does it make you actually more like this world? Sports. Sports. You know, praise God, the Vikings aren't playing today, so you can't go, when's pastor going to end here, right? But it's not just watching sports, it's participating in sports as a son of a world-class athlete. You know what happens to a man like LeBron James or Kobe Bryant or, uh, you know, 
whoever else you might tip your, your hat off. Bruce Jenner, no, whatever, Chris Jenner, whatever his name is now. You know what happens to all those medals and records and all those things when you die? You die. And you can't take them with you. And then God's going to ask you, what did you do with Jesus? Not did you win the big one. Not did you break a world record. Not if you were the greatest of all time. What did you do with my son Jesus? It might be a lifestyle of materialism. My life is my stuff. I've got to have a house, a boat, a cabin by the lake. And if I don't have that, I'm not fulfilled. Folks, if, if the gospel is not true in Haiti, and let me assure you, many of our brothers and sisters in Haiti don't have those things, then it's not true here. Stuff is not your life. Christ is your life. It could be success. It could be your smartphone. Maybe you're afraid you're going you're gonna to miss out on something. What would happen if cell coverage went out for a month? Well, what would that do to you? Or maybe it's a relationship, again, that things give you significance. It leads you in a wrong direction, maybe sexual immorality, and it's leading you away from him. Whatever it is, whatever it is. I want to say this. The Lord Jesus is jealous for you, follower of Jesus. And if you've not put your faith in him, he's jealous for you too. Because he wants you to be his. He wants you to have life in him. And it can't be given by this world, folks. This is what his half-brother, James, said. James 4, verses 4 through 6. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But... He gives more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives favor to the humble. Hum submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, I think James through the Holy Spirit knows that we are drawn to the things of this world. And there are moments we need to continue to repent of them. I'm just going to be honest right now. I'm in the process of looking for a new pickup truck. You know what keeps me awake at night? Thinking about stupid pickup trucks. You know, the next one I buy is going to end up like the one I have right now, rusting. I've been praying, God, give me, give me a heart for the people I'm going to talk to today. Forget about the truck. It'll be there. Or it won't be there. But it's certainly not my life. Friendship of this world. Are we letting it draw us away from Him? Are we letting it draw us away from Him? But He gives more grace. He gives more grace. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We can confess that. Say, Lord, <sighs> I've been concerned about the wrong things. I've been finding life in the wrong things. And I'm not finding life there. They're leaving me wanting. Let me submit myself to you. Let me resist the devil who's trying to take me away from you. And he will flee from me. You know, in uh, Revelation 2.4, Jesus talks to one of the churches in Ephesus. He says, you've got a lot going for you, but here's the one thing I hold against you. You've forsaken your first love. And that's me. 
I need to be your first love. It's not because Jesus has an ego problem. It's because he knows that's where life is actually found. And we're trying to fill our lives with other things. And so we can pray, just as the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, you know, my anxious thoughts and see if there's a hurtful or if there's an unfaithful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. This message is about faithfulness to God. Where are you at? Where am I at? That's what he's calling us to. And when we discover it, we can again lean into his faithfulness as I talked earlier about. John 1.9 If we confess our sin, he's faithful, he is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But that's what Jesus desires. That we be wholehearted towards him. We would desire him. And not head back to pursuing bankrupt and empty lovers, empty cisterns, if you will, and other things that will just leave us wanting. He wants us to find his, our fulfillment in him. So with that, let me pray. And Bobby, will you and the worship team come and close us? So Lord, this is a tough message and some tough things had to take place. And Lord, if we find ourselves in a place where we have connected ourselves to something that's going to lead us astray, would you give us the grace to cut those things free, even if it might be painful? Because ultimately our freedom comes in knowing you and following you. And Lord, if there's somebody today who, who doesn't know what it means to find freedom in you, Lord Jesus, would you draw them to yourself? Would you help them to see that you are a good Savior who came for them, who did what they could not do in living a perfect life? The God-man who sacrificed himself for them. And they would take you up on your promise that to as many as received him, even to those who believe in the Son of God. To them, he gave the right to become the children of God. Would you give them grace to say, Jesus, come into my heart. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Now come and transform my life. Make me your child. Make me your follower. And help me to cling to you. And Lord, if we need to repent today in our own lives where we just see things that, again, that are leading us astray, would you give us grace to do that? It's all about you, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.